The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Sarah Eisen, live from Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, after the Magnificent Seven dominated the market in 2023, Wilmington Trust's Megan Shu makes the case for betting on small caps in the new year. The Russell 2000 rallying 25% just in the past two months. Then, if you do want to stay with Mega Cap Tech, Mark Mahaney will be here to lay out his top picks, why he says Expedia may be a stock to target. And then Tesla rebuffs a Reuters investigation as shares hover around three-month highs. Right now in the markets, we're higher again. This has been the trend. We're nine weeks strong. S&P 500, not too far from a record closing high. 47.89, watch 47.96, that's the record. Dow, closing at a record yesterday, continues to power higher. NASDAQ, composite, also higher. It's still not at record highs, but the NASDAQ 100 did close at a record high. The trend has been lower yields. They're firm up a little bit with the 10-year yield at 3.8%, still super low compared to where we were, about 5% just earlier in the fall. Topping the tape for us this morning, that record watch for the S&P 500, a two-year round trip for the major averages. The all-time closing high again for the S&P, just above 47.96. On an intraday basis, 48.18 is the number to watch. Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, boy, there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement yes. in the market right now. Are we, is it being overdone? The, the rally since late October has definitely uh, gotten the, uh, the bandwagon pretty full. I would say you could argue in the very, very short term, tactically, it maybe is getting a little bit lopsided in terms of bullish sentiment and how people are positioned going into the new year. But historically, first of all, we showed the two-year charts. Two-year round trip is what you've had in the S&P 500. Uh, it was the first couple of trading days of January 2022. You hit those record highs. So what's happened in those two years? Well, you were at 0%. You went through an entire Fed tightening cycle, it seems. Uh, you're going to be we're on the other end of it in some respects now. Uh, economy is much bigger. Earnings are higher. Even the Magnificent Seven are not yet back to those peak valuations if you look at them compared to earnings. So it seems like it's not necessarily uh-oh, all-time highs. We're going to tag it and, and turn lower. Historically, buying an all-time high has better than average risk-reward uh, on a forward-going basis than not buying an all-time high, in other words, than just a random sampling of, of, of market environments. I think it's an important point to underscore, which is we are at levels on the S&P now where we were before 525 yeah. basis points of tightening. Exactly. I mean, you, you can't argue that that hasn't had any fundamental impact. Oh, on the economy. Well, certainly not. I mean, like the, the, the debate is to how much it's had on the economy and how much inflation might have come down otherwise and whether growth would have been stronger and whether housing would have been absolutely piping hot, you know, up to this point as opposed to turning down. So it's a counterfactual you can kind of argue about. But I think, look, when the market goes sideways or, or worse for 500 trading days, which is kind of what we've done, mm. that shows you that there was a financial tightening going on, right? I mean, normally, in normal times, two years, the market tends to do better than flat. So I think that just by that evidence, you could say it's had some effect. I think now the question is, you know, maybe, again, if there's some sentiment give back in the first quarter, you have to be aware of that hangover effect, possibly, uh, as earnings, either they do or don't come through as planned. 
The question is, how much mm. of the market-based expectations for what the Fed does next is Well, materialize. Is, well, how much will materialize and how much that matters a lot for uh, where stocks are trading right now. You know, they say never short a dull market. Yeah, exactly. And technically, it looks very strong. Your buddy Jeff DeGraff of Renaissance Macro joined us two weeks ago. He said, I haven't seen this kind of bullishness in yeah. the market since 2009, exactly. where we were kind of skeptical. But I and mean, he's it's been also right. saying, as of today, he says, yes, sentiment is getting, getting a little bit frothy, but momentum trumps sentiment in uptrending markets. In other words, the market has such a head of steam behind it, especially with the majority of stocks participating, that you defer to that positive trend as opposed to trying to pick the top based on sentiment. On the other hand, consensus was wrong at the end of 2021, yep. was wrong at the end of 2022. It's very true. Consensus is very rosy for 2024. It's rosy in the sense that we're going to thread the needle. I agree with that. I do think there's going to be scares along the way. There's no doubt about it, whether it's because growth is coming in worse than we expected or maybe, maybe yields bottom and they rise again. We'll see. Yeah. There are risks. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Mike Santoli, staying on the market. Our next guest recently adding two equities, bringing her overall exposure to neutral. So what areas of the market is she finding the most value heading into the new year? Joining us is Wilmington Trust Head of Investment Strategy, Megan Shu. So first of all, on the decision, was it a, was it a FOMO decision, Megan? What changed your mind? Um, not FOMO. Um, I think for it to be FOMO, you'd have to have a shorter investment horizon than we tend to have, which is 12 months plus. For us, it was really about the shifting narrative around the soft landing and a material increase in our probability of the economy sticking the landing, avoiding recession, um, and seeing this expansion continue. And so we were underweight to equities on seeing uh, higher risk than reward. And we now see it as more balanced and wanted to add exposure. Um, but clearly, parts of the market have run away. So we were looking at some parts of the market that haven't participated quite, quite as much. That's where you come to small caps, which hadn't participated until very recently, where they've had a pretty strong comeback. Exactly. So I actually think this is a really good combination, because while you are uh, carefully on all-time high watch for the S&P 500, we're still uh, a bit off that for the Russell 2000, 10 to 15% off all-time highs. And yet, the last couple of months, we've seen much improved momentum. So I think this is a good entry point uh, for small cap. We took that to a slight overweight. I think there's a number of other factors as well. As you see uh, rates coming down, some parts of small cap that have more uh, importance, higher weight than in the S&P 500, like financials, I think will have a better year. And you have been talking uh, over the past couple of hours about a reversion trade. And I think small cap is part of that story as well. Um, but I should say at the same time, we have about a 1.2% GDP growth forecast for 2024. That is a slowing economy. That is not yes. a reaccelerating economy. Um, small cap's not a monolith. We are focusing within small cap on higher quality, slightly larger size, um, because we don't think that the junk rally is something that will continue. Well, to that point, it's, it's not like we're seeing earnings expectations climb into next year, which you could argue makes it a tougher time to buy cyclically based small cap stocks. Yes. I mean, the downward revisions to earnings is something that we, we tend to see, and we do think that that will continue. Um, but I do think you're going to get that broadening of market leadership and small cap should participate in that. But you're absolutely right. Well, let's just shift over to large caps for a second. Earnings growth of 10 to 12% with a GDP forecast a little over 1%. 
is a bit of a stretch. Um, and so I think you could see a little bit of churn in the market. We're not expecting uh, very, very robust returns in 2024. We've certainly borrowed some of that uh, and pushed it into 2023. And volatility could certainly continue. But I think it's a good time to be fully invested in the equity market. You know, I, I'm surprised, you know, with the, with the call that the market should broaden out and pick up some of the left behind sectors. You're still underweight staples and utilities, which are the worst performing sectors of 2023. Why? Yeah, well, I, I think it's I think it's a little bit of a balance. To me, those sectors might get a little bit lost in the middle. So on the one hand, you might see some recovery of the very beaten up cyclical parts of the market. Call it financials. Um, industrials we're still not all that excited about, but I think you could see some recovery there if the manufacturing recession, um, the manufacturing economy improves. But again, it comes back to lower rates and very modest growth. And that's really an environment where the growthier parts of the market would tend to shine. So think of it as a soft version of a barbell when you're thinking about sectors. Um, staples, utilities, staples in particular are an area where in a disinflationary environment, passing through those cost increases could be challenging. And just zooming out, so, so your neutral equities, and I, I understand the case for that. I mean, this was a year where 60-40 stocks and bonds actually did quite well, returned about 20%. Is that, is that a formula? Are you, are, you, are you overweight fixed income? We are still overweight fixed income. Um, and we've been very pleased with the performance of the 60-40 because uh, this time last year, there was a lot of talk about whether that uh, portfolio mix is dead and, and won't work anymore. And I think rates have um, probably come in a little bit too far, perhaps, and we could see a little bit of bounce back. But even if rates increase modestly from here, um, the yields and our expectation for credit spreads means that uh, taxable fixed income on the investment grade side, as well as municipal bonds, should do quite well. So we are still... Um, still liking that stock bond mix that you get from a 60-40. What about commodities? What kind of exposure should you have, if any, there? Oil's tracking for a down year, first time we've seen that in a few years. Although some of these commodities, gold, are, are really making a stand here with the weak dollar. Yeah, commodities are a tough trade. There's a, there's a lot of geopolitical risk premium uh, in the commodity asset class. I would say energy is something that we've been neutral to slightly overweight. Um, really on the case that there's a bit of a floor to oil prices with OPEC being so engaged and not letting prices fall, even in a, the case of a softening economy. And I think the soft economy narrative is pretty well baked in energy. So I think you could see um, oil prices move modestly from here. And then anything in agriculture could be very much dictated by um, the war in Ukraine and, and really those geopolitical risk events. Megan, thank you for taking a trip around the portfolio with us. Megan Shu, Wilmington Trust. Thank you. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. Still to come, Evercore's Mark Mahaney lays out his top tech picks for the year ahead. Of note, Expedia replacing Uber for him after jumping 75% in 2023. More money movers right after a quick break with the Dow up 57 points. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. UNH, Goldman Sachs, and Amgen leading the Dow higher right now. Our next guest says internet names in 2024 are set to build on this year's massive gains, but don't expect the same highs we saw in 2023. He says the outperformance means no material expansion opportunity in 2024. So how do you navigate that? Joining us now is Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney. Welcome, Mark. Good to see you. Good morning, Sarah. So in your top picks, you're swapping out Uber, which was a really good call for this year, with Expedia which is interesting because it hasn't really done that much relative to some of the other travel names until, I don't know, November or so. It's really taken off. What's the story there? So and if I just step back a little bit, look, we this last year, uh, I didn't. we tried to be tactically constructive. I didn't think the stocks would perform as well as they did. But we set, certainly had a setup for where multiples were depressed, estimates were depressed, and it just created these great uh, EPS slingshot opportunities is what we called it. Uh, and that is because of all of the rips or the cost action that these companies took. It really created these great margin expansion, earnings pop opportunities in the back half of the year. That's what played out. The multiples have recovered. So that means you've got to be choicier going into 24. I don't think the returns can be as great as what you had in uh, in in, uh, in 23. But now I want to pick apart a few names, and Expedia is one of those. This will be, I think 24 will be the first year that I can recall, maybe ever, that its growth rate is going to be similar to booking and Airbnb. It's two ob- most obvious comps. And then uh, what I look at is then is the valuation. Well, you've got Airbnb at 30 times earnings. You've got booking at 20 times earnings. And I, you've got um, Expedia at 13, 14 times earnings. So if the growth rates converge, the multiples are probably going to converge too. Uh, I think there's also a lot of self-help initiatives that Expedia is rolling out going into next year. They have a new consumer loyalty program called OneKey. And then they finally put their major brands on the OneTech platform. I think that'll lead to a lot of operational efficiencies and maybe some revenue improvements. And so that's the pitch on, on Expedia. It's a great sector, online travel. It generates a lot of cash flow. All these companies buy back a lot of their stock. Expedia is buying back a quarter of their market cap. So I think it's a good business model that's going to sort of fundamentally improving next year. And you've still got this big multiple gap. You want to play the multiple gap by Expedia. Even if global consumer spending softens, especially demand for travel, which has been so hot this year? Well, it depends on the rate at which uh, it uh, it decelerates. Uh, our survey work and all of the industry data points that we've looked at, you know, as recently as earlier this week, we haven't seen a softness yet in leisure travel and business travel, by the way, hasn't fully recovered. And Expedia is a little bit of a playoff that. So if travel demand holds up reasonably well into next year, yeah, I think these travel stocks can outperform, particularly Expedia, particularly trading at 14 concerts. What about Amazon? It's it's still your top pick. I think top pick. It has been. It's been it's been a winning play this year. What was what was the realization this year? Did AWS profitability stabilized? What's and what's the catalyst for next year? Yeah, and if we step back a little bit, Sarah, like Amazon's performance over the last two years has been kind of eh. 
it's been uh, it hasn't been that impressive as last year. It did well, but a lot of other companies did well, too. There's another leg of upside to the stock. If they can get AWS growth, Amazon Web Services growth, their cloud business to truly accelerate. If you'd known a few years ago, uh, 18 months ago, 24 months ago, that Amazon, uh, AWS's growth rate was going to go from 30% down to 12%, which it did in the last two quarters, you would have said steer clear of that stock. The only reason it didn't actually massively underperform is, this re- is that the retail business really came through and started showing the potential for record margins, record profits. But now you need the stock needs the AWS kicker. And I think that's going to come through. I think a couple of these sectors are actually going to show accelerating revenue growth. And I think cloud computing and AWS is one of those. We're largely through the optimization cycle that AWS was most impacted by, but all the cloud vendors were. And so if you get that acceleration going into next year, that'll probably lead to uh, rising margins. I think the retail business will show record high margins in 2024, and the company as a whole is going to show record high free cash flow margins in 2025. And investors will take that multiple up a little bit and buy the stock because of that, our number one pick. Yeah, up 195 is your price target there. So as you see some upside, just on the on the price performance, your 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 area has been so beloved this year, and and some of these valuations and these stocks have run up so much. And I wonder if it, it, which one do you think looks looks best positioned from a valuation perspective after such a tremendous run? Well, there are not too many. You know, I love these uh, this concept of <laughs> DHQs, dislocated high quality companies. I mean, we had a poster child with Meta at the beginning of last year, but it's no longer a poster child. It's, uh, you know, 19, 20 times earnings. Maybe it should go up a turn or something like that. But, you know, it's it's really going to move as most of the stocks in this group, like Uber will, they're compounders now. So the stocks will go up 20, 25, 30 percent over the course of the year because that's what their earnings growth is, not because you're going to get a multiple re-rating. So I'm still looking for those, Mm -hmm. you know, those edge cases where the multiple can go up and the earnings growth can be you know, really impressive, 20, 30 percent. I think Expedia fits that bill. I, I still think Amazon can re-rate a little bit, but it, you know, it needs that AWS acceleration unlock. And that's about it. Most of the other names that we like here are really compounders. They, they're good assets. They went from being way overbought in 21 to way oversold in 22. And now they're kind of back at par in terms of their multiples. So now you're just playing the yeah. compound game with high quality names. And they're in this in this sector. Well, I remember talking to you around this time last year, and your sentiment was horrible around your your universe. I was like the most hated stocks. What is it like now? Is it too loved? No, but it's closer to being too loved than too hated. Yeah. That's for sure. So um, I don't know. On a scale of one to ten, if in the middle of 2022, that's when everything's selling off in the internet space, you know, uh, irregardless of quality, I mean, everything was selling off the same. That's when it, sentiment was too. Uh, I'd say that uh, at the end of 21, that sentiment's probably an eight. I'd say now we're probably like a seven or something like that in terms of sentiment. So yeah, we've got we've got risk here. But I just I look at the multiples. And the multiples are kind of back at par. And by the way, as we all know, stocks rarely ever kind of hit par and just stay there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in a year of of uh, rate cuts in a year in which I, we're going to get more and more examples of. Uh, Gen AI deployments, I wouldn't be surprised to see us kind of overrate a little bit more. So I actually think if there's a bias, if there's a surprise 12 months from now, we're going to be surprised if these stocks actually outperformed and that would set up a really tough 25. Higher, yeah. On top of a, a year, the NASDAQ likely to close out best year since 2003. Mark Mahaney, thank you very much for Thanks, joining Sarah. us. Evercore ISI. Apple resuming sales of its watch after an appeals court lifted a U.S. ban. So how can the company avoid a fifth straight quarter of falling revenue? We're going to discuss when Money Movers comes right back. 
haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best nut sound you've ever heard. European markets mostly muted this morning heading into the close. Investors look to finish the year strong. German DAX up 20% this year. Even stronger gains across Europe and places like Madrid and Spain. A lot of hopes on the ECB that they will be cutting rates in 2024 as well, joining the Fed. But some ECB officials aren't as dovish. Bloomberg reporting that European Central Bank Governing Council member Robert Holzman says, quote, even if the ECB has passed an unprecedented series of 10 consecutive rate increases, there is no guarantee of rate reductions. Someone should tell him the market's pricing in at least six ECB cuts next year. About two hours here into trading. Let's go post to post with Bob Bassani for a look at what's moving now, Bob. And Sarah, great uh, anchoring with you today. We were talking about the delivering alpha survey. Uh, which of the weakest sector has the most upside potential? We asked 300 fund managers, healthcare, energy, consumer staples, and utilities. This is, makes a lot of sense. These are sectors that have been underperforming. There's usually a little bit of a mean reversion trade. And we'll see if this happens. So let me just show you some things that have, have been moving here. The, the question is how much upside is left. Like utilities have just gotten a, an awful year. Uh, AES is one of the big uh, utilities, down 32% year to date. This was $12 in October at the height of the interest rate move up. Now, look, 19 or so. But it was 30 in January. So you see these have a long way to go. It's understandable with rates coming down, you'd think there'd be uh, a little bit of move up. But it hasn't been very big uh, at all. Next year, energy, this is one of the big renewable plays uh, in the utility space. Uh, it's down 25% in the year. It was uh, $60, uh, 85 a year ago. And look at the move to the downside there. Uh, we'll see. But again, it was 50 in October, now 60. Not a huge move up considering how much it's, it's moved down here. I think, again, some of these problems is utilities are still um, going to have serious competition with Treasury still in the 4% range. So you can say, well, they're beaten up, but you still have serious competition. It doesn't mean there's going to be a major rally here. The same with the consumer staples names. We talked about this, and Sarah and I were talking about uh, some of the consumer staple names and the food company names. Uh, you see Campbell's here down, oh, about 25%. Uh, not far from the recent lows in October. Uh, the same thing with General Mills, uh, 64. Yeah, that was over 80. It's, it's, it's down 25% this year as well here. Um, and again, similar story here. Consumer staples, and Sarah and I were talking about this, have seen lower demand, lower volumes. There's a little bit of disinflation in the commodities that they, they package around. That's going to make it more difficult for them to raise prices on the year. So, yes, they're beaten up. Yes, it makes a move, uh, sense to move, but not necessarily going to uh, rally. Same with the oil stocks, just before I toss it back to, uh, to Sarah here. Devin is another one's down 25% near the low of the year, 43 a few weeks ago. And here, 46, not up much. And again, oil's been rallying, but the simple problem is too much supply out there. As you know, Sarah, OPEC has got a lot less influence uh, than it had 40 or 50 years ago. Sarah, back to you. Yeah, and in the U.S., the inventory build also yeah, exactly. has been hurting oil. Thank you, Bob. Bob Pisani. Okay. Time now for news updates. Silvana Hanau has that for us. Silvana. Hey, Sarah. Good morning. 
An American hostage who was believed to be in Hamas captivity is now believed dead. A spokesperson for Kibbutz near Oz says 70-year-old Judy Weinstein was killed on October 7th during Hamas's surprise attack on Israel alongside her Israeli-American husband. The mother of four and grandmother of seven was an American-Canadian-Israeli triple citizen. Six Americans are still believed to be in Hamas captivity, all of them men. Demolition is underway this morning at the house where four University of Idaho students were killed last year. Some of the victims' families have pushed back against knocking the property down, arguing the house should remain standing until the man accused in the brutal stabbings stands trial. And Sarah, this one's for you. Taylor Swift mania has crossed the Atlantic. UK vinyl sales surged to their highest since 1990 this year, and that's thanks in part to the pop star. According to a British industry group, record sales there jumped nearly 12% in 2023 with Swift's 1989 Taylor's version selling the most copies, followed by the Rolling Stones' new album, Hackney Diamonds, Sarah. To you. Wow. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not even that big of a Swifty. I just listen <laughs> on Spotify. There you go. That's great. Thank you very much, you Silvana. Up next, stubborn inflation and the commercial real estate market. Two biggest risks to stocks in 2024, according to CNBC's Delivering Alpha survey of investors. So how do you minimize those risks? We'll discuss when Money Movers comes right back. When it comes to cuts in 2024, we're talking about Fed cuts. Our next guest says it could get a bit awkward. He says that despite falling inflation, the U.S. is vulnerable to shocks, and we could see upside surprises in inflation, potentially making it difficult for the Fed to lower rates. Joining us now, Economic Cycle Research Institute co-founder Lakshman Akathan. It's good to see you. It's been a while, Lakshman. I always love your contrarian take. You, you track the economy using your ECRI insects. What is it showing right now that the consensus is not seeing? Well, on the thank you. And, and on the economy, uh, you're right, we're tracking the economic cycle quite closely. And cyclically, uh, a lot of the drivers are actually to the downside. And they, and they, they have been, they continue to be. Um, the positive uh, has been there's a lot of non-cyclical uh, elements to the economy. They're pushing to the upside. And that's a tug of war that's been going on uh, for a little bit. It's going to continue uh, into next year. And since we are kind of priced for perfection here going into 2024, it's very optimistic, as you were saying. Uh, it's our job to kind of look for where are the vulnerabilities. And if you have a cyclical kind of slowing, you're more vulnerable to any negative shocks. And so we're being very wise to that. And then quite separately from growth, as you were saying, on the inflation front, um, everybody's been enjoying the pace of inflation coming mm -hmm. down and extending that into 2024. But inflation doesn't really work that way. It's cyclical. It kind of has ebbs and flows. And if it doesn't fit to script, all of those rate hikes, you know, the market's getting ahead of the Fed even and saying there's more hikes. Yeah. And and uh, excuse me, cuts. Yeah. And so all of those all of those come into, I think, a little bit of question if you assume too far into 2024. 
So, so is that? Do you think that's the biggest risk right now for this market rally? That is that inflation proves stickier than the market thinks. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, basically, I think uh, uh, that people like to extrapolate recent trends. The tr the trend in inflation is to the downside, and so you say, well, that's just got to continue. It has to. Maybe the supply chains have loosened up or whatever, and so it has to continue to the downside. Inflation actually doesn't work that way, uh, and there are a number of components. Uh, of inflation that have been proven sticky and are likely to continue to be sticky. Uh, the labor market has been very, very tight, as you know. There's a lot of yeah. so-called hoarding. And when you look at things like wages, they've come down off their highs, but they're very elevated. And um, that is going to be something that we have to keep a close eye on going forward. So my, the biggest counter I have to that is, have you seen what's happening with inflation expectations? I mean, 10-year tips, break-evens, five-year, five-year, five-year forwards, they're all falling, and they're, they've taken another leg down and are all now around just a little above 2%, which is where the Fed would want it. Yeah, I mean, those are a little bit jumpier. The real rates uh, have actually been the bigger mover in the come down in overall uh, interest rates. And when you look at things like actual wages being paid, in particular in the service sector, which is where most of us work, they're running above 5%, and they have been for the last uh, three or four months now. They've come down from six, uh, six or so, six and a half uh, last year, and now they're kind of plateauing. Uh, that kind of stuff uh, will give the Fed some pause uh, unless they have something else going on. Uh, that we, uh, you know, that they've yet to kind of share with us, and so I would watch these kind of things going forward. I'm just a, I'm as a cycle person, yeah, and managing cycle risk. I do not like to extrapolate. I mean, I love the good times, and <laughs> in the next couple of months, it's going to probably be uh, inflation to the downside. I wouldn't bank on that all the way through next year, and I think that's where I would deviate from the consensus. So as a cycle guy who's observed decades of economic cycles, do you think they can pull it off? Do you think they can, we, we can get away this time with all the tightening without taking us into recession? You know, it's, it's possible. I won't say never. Uh, I won't say it's impossible. Um, but I think we remain vulnerable here. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for them. Uh, but I think we remain vulnerable here. And I think the big risk is not understanding the cyclicality of inflation. Um, there's also some stuff's happening globally that that could uh, that has been winded our back for a while on inflation. That could shift next year. So we're keeping a close eye on all of that. And there are other green shoots. For example, I don't I don't want to be the just the naysayer here. Uh, in in Europe, for example, we see cyclically uh, some the picture starting to brighten, uh, and so that's a positive. Okay. We'll leave it there on the on the positive note then. Lakshman, thank you. Good to see you. Uh, thank you. La Lakshman Akathan. Up next, Apple resuming sales of its watch in the US. So will that help the company return to growth? We're gonna discuss when money movers return. Let's talk Apple. Worst performer in the Magnificent Seven this year, which is not all that bad. It's still up 49%. But the Magnificent Seven average is around 108%. So what's in store for Apple next year? Steve Kovac has more for today's Tech Check. Steve.
Hey, Sarah. Yeah, that's the big question for Apple going into next year. How does it return to that top line revenue growth? And of course, we've been talking about this for the last several months. Four straight quarters in a row of declining sales. And on top of that, that super important holiday quarter that we're in right now, Apple says sales are probably going to be flat. Now, despite that, shares up about 48%. Nothing to shake a stick at. But look, there's good news and bad news heading into 2024 when it comes to what can return them to growth. Let's talk about the headwinds in China in particular here. Huawei coming back online and making phones again. We've seen some indications that Chinese customers are switching from iPhone phone back to Huawei now that they're making phones again, plus a crackdown on the by the government over there on online gaming and, of course, all those rumors we hear about certain government agencies banning iPhones. I would also throw in, as we're talking internationally, the EU Digital Markets Act that's going to go in effect over there. That could be really hard, too. Here in the U.S., that reprieve that Apple got yesterday with the Apple Watch still being worked out. But look, there's also some really good stuff going on here too, re-accelerating hardware, uh, sorry, software margins because of the service business. Services were up 16% in the September quarter. So that's what we got going on there, Sarah. It's going to be a lot of struggles going on to move them forward uh, and get back to top line revenue growth again. What about AI? Is there going to be an AI story for Apple? (laughs) It's hard to tell. Um, We do know there was that report last week in the New York Times talking about uh, sort of how they're Uh, training their own large language models, kind of like OpenAI is doing, taking a different approach to and paying those companies. But we really have no idea when it comes to generative AI, what's going to happen there? And also, how is there a revenue opportunity there? Is there some kind of AI app store or something else? We're not really sure. All right. Thank you, Steve Kovac. Thanks. And to Siri as well. (laughs) Heard that. Let's continue the conversation with Wall Street Journal personal senior tech columnist Joanna Stern. Joanna, welcome. You know, on, the, on this watch story, how big of a deal is it in your view? I think in the short term, it's not that big of a deal in the sense that, look, they're back on shelves today. I don't think it, it damaged a lot of people who wanted to get that Apple Watch. They somehow were able to get that Apple Watch. People saying this increased demand. I don't think people were running out if they didn't want the Apple Watch to begin with. Of course, that Ultra, which is the most expensive watch and the one that Apple makes the most money on, would have caused the most damage there. I think when you look at this, though, you have to look at the big picture, right? Apple wants this watch to be the health device, the wearable that can tell all the things that are happening in your body. And this was a hiccup here for them, a a PR black eye for sure, but a hiccup for them in terms of what are they going to do in the future with adding this technology and preventing patent disputes with other types of companies that do other types of healthcare sensors and software. Got it. So you heard Steve. I mean, he's looking he's looking for revenue growth. Street's looking for revenue growth. And you're in your view and you follow sort of the releases and the gadgets. What do you see? Is there a needle mover coming? I definitely don't think it's the Vision Pro. That's obviously going to be a big story for Apple in 2024. But even Apple is not expecting there a mainstream hit. As as Tim Cook has said, even at the introduction of that, this is the beginning of the journey in spatial computing. And this is a, a step there. I think Apple believes in the future this is going to be a big product category. But at $3,500, it's not going to be the mainstream hit. But eventually, we're going to see that grow. We're going to see the prices come down. We're going to see the features prove out, hopefully. I mean, we, we don't really quite know what is the reason we all want to have this headset, and we're going to see that hopefully this year. Right, because I guess the goal would to make, to, be, to make something more mainstream, right, in VR, which we haven't really seen happen yet. 
that's the story of 2024 with the Vision Pro. What are the things you're going to want to do with this headset? Create the desire for it. Hopefully they see people using or people see people using this for some cool, crazy thing and say, oh, I really want that. But I'm going to want that when it's a thousand dollars or or maybe even $1,500, right? Not $3,500. Right. You're also watching some of the, the regulations, particularly out of Europe, with, with relation to the App Store, the services business. What's at stake here? Yeah, Steve mentioned that as well, right? Apple has a deadline of March 7th to implement the changes in the EU that would affect the App Store, making the App Store or making apps more accessible on iOS, on the iPhone making the sort of making the walls crumble a little bit and people being able to get apps from outside the, the, the walled garden of the app store that Apple has had for, for years. Uh, the big question I think there is, do they just do this in the EU? Do they have to do it or they don't have to do it everywhere else, but do they just do it in the EU? That seems more likely. They wouldn't want to have to do it in the U.S. where they wouldn't have to do it. Got it. And then on the I, I asked Steve about AI, a, any sense on what's what's being developed there behind the scenes? I don't have a strong sense, but they've got to do it. I don't, Apple's not sitting around. I think also one place to really look at that is the chips business for Apple. Apple has spent a lot of time and energy and resources building up the M chips in the Macs. Also, obviously, the chips in the iPhones and the iPads, their own silicon. What they're going to be able to do with that silicon, matching it with AI, with LLMs, is going to be unique. It's going to be unique in, in comparison to what Microsoft can do. Hmm. All right, Joanna, thank you very much. Happy New Year. Joanna Stern. Happy New Year. to look forward to. After the break, Tesla trading near three-month highs while pushing back against a Reuters report saying the company has blamed drivers for frequent failures of components that the company has long known were defective. We're going to take a look at this story next. Insight, analysis, opportunity, a look behind the curtain of what's really driving the market. Money Movers is now online. Follow us on X at Money Movers CNBC. Two U.S. senators this morning asking for a Tesla recall following a Reuters investigation that alleged Tesla used a number of faulty parts that knew were defective. Tesla issuing a long response on X, rebuffing the claims. The stock has had a banner year in 2023, more than doubling. Can that hot streak continue as the headlines pile up and Elon Musk continues to be preoccupied with X? Former Ford CEO and interim Hertz CEO Mark Fields joins now with his outlook for Tesla in 2024. I just want to read you part of this statement from Tesla because they, they acknowledge the article, say they published an article that leads with wildly misleading headline is riddled with incomplete and demonstrably incorrect information. And then they go through point by point what they see as wrong. For instance, blaming the drivers for failures, the reality Tesla paid for most of the 120,000 vehicle repairs under warranty, et cetera, et cetera. Does this, does this seem like it presents a big risk for Tesla? Well, Sarah, you know, every, uh, every car company has their issues on quality around vehicles. I think the interesting thing about this is they, they do note that they've repaired about 120,000 vehicles. That's a large percentage for the number of vehicles that they have in their, what they call the car park, all the vehicles that they have out there in the marketplace. That's the thing that sticks out. When you have that large of a percentage, you know, usually where there's smoke, there's fire. And listen, as you know, Sarah, in the article, uh, Tesla does not have a communications department. So, you know, <laughs> trying to kind of work with the, the, the writers to kind of clarify things before they come out with, that's not Tesla's MO. So, 
you know, that's this is this is part of the ramifications of that. I was wondering if like this came from Elon Musk himself. I'm not not sure who's who's running communications there. As far as the stock performance, I mean, Mark, there's a lot of optimism around delivery numbers, which we should get next year. What's your sense of demand? It was it was a year that we expected demand to fall off, and it did a little bit for EVs, but not so much for Teslas, especially with the price cuts. Yeah, you're exactly right, Sarah. I mean, uh, beginning of last year, Tesla got very aggressive with price cuts. It depressed their margins, but it did increase their volumes. And I think that's uh, partly reflected in their stock performance this year. I also think when you see some of the established automakers like GM and Ford and others who have you know, recently announced that they're pulling back on some of their aggressive EV investments, that's also helped the stock. And I think as you look at 2024, I think it's going to be another another year of growth uh, and, and drama for the company, uh, probably less so on growth in 2024 because there's no new high volume products. And who knows on the drama? That'll be either more or less, depending upon uh, Elon and how we go, the, go about things. What about the rest of the space? I was looking at some of these lithium stocks, for instance. I mean, they're down double digits. They've had a nice comeback in December, but... MP Materials down 44% from the 52-week high. Albemarle, Piedmont. I mean, what's going on with broader EV demand? Well, I think what you're seeing with EV demand, particularly here in the U.S., is there's still the two main impediments are price, you know, versus an internal combustion engine, and getting people comfortable with the fact that they'll be able to charge it uh, without having a lot of inconvenience. And I think those two things, you know, you're, the industry is running into a bit of a brick wall. And now that you're going to mass adoption, those things really matter to, you know, the person sitting across the kitchen table from their partner saying, what can we afford this year? And is it going to make my life harder or easier? So I think you're seeing that reflected. Uh, You're also seeing, you know, Europe still growth, but, you know, less than they've had in the past. And I think that's overall, uh, if you will, coloring the the very aggressive uh, forecast that you've seen, you know, last year and the year before, which really pumped up a lot of the, the stocks, as you mentioned, in the supply chain. And I think that a little bit of reality is coming back in the, the price of those stocks. So where does that at- go in 2024? Do you think governments respond with greater incentives as they're trying to fight climate change? Or, or did everyone just get too excited about the EV future? Well, you know, I, if you take it by, by country, I think in China, you know, they're, they've said they want to lead in EVs. So I think you're going to continue to see the government provide incentives both for the consumer and also their manufacturers, their auto manufacturers. In Europe, you've seen places like Germany, which have cut short their EVs due to budget concerns. Uh, So that may impact the EV growth. You're still going to have growth uh, in Europe, but maybe slightly less. And here in the U.S., uh, Sarah, as you know, the the U.S. is uh, continuing to evolve the incentives for EVs. And this year, uh, two big important things. One is it ratchets it up the uh, requirements for assembly and the type of elements that are used in the batteries. So you're going to see a few vehicles, including you know the Tesla Model 3 uh, long-range version, which will uh, reduce the incentives. So you know at the end of the day, I think for volume in 2024, I think you're going to see the industry you know, continue to provide maybe more incentives. It'll be interesting to see what Tesla does now that yeah. some of their incentives will go down in 2024, whether they'll put that, pull that price lever again. I also wonder about the competitiveness of the market in China. News today that Xiaomi is unveiling its first EV to compete with Porsche and Tesla. BYD, Chinese competitor at the lower price point, 
I think set to surpass Tesla very soon, maybe this quarter, as the largest seller of EVs in the world. What's happening in that market? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's been very supported by the government uh, going back 10, 15 years now where they wanted to lead in electrification because they, you know, they weren't leading, obviously, in internal combustion engines. They missed that opportunity. They weren't going to miss it this time around. I think what you're seeing in China is, you know, some intense price and product competition. And, you know, on the one hand, for negative for Tesla is, you know, that's their biggest market. So they're facing the competition up front. On the positive for Tesla, listen, when you're competing at the coal face with these very, very good competitors, it make it forces you to become good in that market. And then you can take those lessons learned in your other markets like the U.S. and Europe. So that's actually an advantage. It feels pain in the marketplace, but they'll learn a lot and they'll apply it to other markets, whether it's cost, marketing or product. You have a surprise pick for for the winner of 2024? Well, you know, I think General Motors is going to be coming out with uh, two very important products, both uh, their Blazer and lower lower price versions of their Equinox EVs. So, you know, it's 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 showtime for Mary Barron and GM to see if they can perform. And I think, you know, Tesla will continue to grow. I think the interesting thing to look at for Tesla, Sarah, in 2024 is what's happening with the residual values of their products. Uh, if those tend to continue to go down, you know, you may, you know, have customers yeah. just say, you know, I'll give it a one one shot and then I'm going to somebody else. But residual values, I think, is going to be a real important thing to watch for Tesla in 2024. OK, I will listen to you. We will do that. Thank you very much, Mark Fields. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. Before we hand it off, just want to show you another rally day here on Wall Street. Inching closer to that record close. The number to watch is 47.96. We're about 10 points away from there on the S&P 500. NASDAQ composite also having another strong-ish day. It doesn't take much right now. NASDAQ 100 closed at a record yesterday. So did the Dow, which is up again. Any close higher will be a new record high. We'll see you back here tomorrow on Money Movers. Now I'll send it over to Frank Holland and the Halftime Report. You haven't heard about number crispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.